MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 57 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, December 31st, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Oh, my gosh. We have a very special guest for our final episode of 2023. And that guest is Judge J. Michael Ludig. Judge Ludig served as an associate with the White House Counsel during the Reagan administration. He then clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia when Scalia was on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and later for Chief Justice Warren Burger on the Supreme Court. He worked at the DOJ under George H.W. Bush, who would then appoint him to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. He recently testified before the January 6th Select Committee and has co-founded the Society for the Rule of Law Institute with George Conway and Barbara Comstock. Judge Ludig will be joining us to discuss his amicus brief arguing against Trump's immunity motion, and his amicus brief has just been accepted by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Yep, yep. And speaking of that immunity claim, Andy, we have Trump's brief that he filed on 1223. We'll be discussing that with Judge Ludig. Uh, he filed that with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. As we know, the expedited briefing schedule was that his filing was due on December 23rd. And of course, the DOJ's filing, which I have some predictions about, uh, will be law uh, will be filed on December thirtieth, which is, of uh, you know, yesterday. But we record this show on Fridays, so it is not out yet. So we will not be discussing it on this show. We will be discussing it in the new year. Although I can basically tell you what it's going to say. Um, <laughs> then, I bet you can. <laughs> so we'll go over that, and then we also have Jack Smith. He filed a motion in limine. We motion in lemonade, right? That is the uh, the motion of stuff that he w- he wants the judge to keep out of the trial. That's right. Uh, and it and even though that trial is stayed, uh, he has filed the motion in lemonade in the DC case. And we have a speedy trial report update that he filed. Jack Smith filed in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Yes. So all of that today. That is a lot. Okay. So we discussed the amicus brief two weeks ago when it was filed for consideration. Uh, But just as a reminder, an amicus curiae, which is Latin for friend of the court, is an individual or organization who is not a party to a legal case, but who is permitted to assist the court by offering information, expertise, or insight that has a bearing on the issues in the case. Now, whether an amicus brief will be considered is typically under the court's discretion. Um, The brief we're talking about here was filed on December 12th with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals by Judge Ludig and 23 other, quote, former officials who have worked in five Republican administrations from Presidents Nixon to George W. Bush, served as elected Republican officials, are constitutional scholars, and others who support a strong presidency. And on December 26th, a per curiam order was issued on the docket. That's an order issued by the three-judge panel, all in agreement, 
quote, granting motion by former officials of five Republican administrations for leave to participate in an amicus curiae in support of appellee, unquote. So the D.C. Circuit has accepted the amicus brief and joining us to discuss the brief is Judge J. Michael Ludig. It's great to see you, Judge. Thank you, Allison and, and Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on this afternoon. No, it's a, it's a true honor for us. So thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you, Andrew. So my first question for you, Judge, is that the argument, I've read through this uh, amicus brief pretty thoroughly a few times, and the argument that you and your colleagues are making is, seems to be centered around protecting the Constitution's executive vesting clause and the design of the office of the presidency itself. Can you explain the crux of your argument and what the executive vesting clause is? Yes, Allison. Um, th- th- this was uh, from myself and, and, and my colleagues a very, very important brief to file on the immunity question. But as I'll explain in a moment, it was especially important to me for my work on uh, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualification of, of the former president. But as to the, the amicus brief that, that, that we filed in the D.C. Circuit, uh, we had filed essentially the same brief in the district court. Uh, and district courts, uh, as, as you both know, typically don't receive amicus briefs at all. And in this instance, uh, uh, Judge Chutkin uh, denied our motion for leave to, to file that brief. Uh, that was not of, of, of any note to me. Uh, I just wanted to file, the, not, I wanted to lodge the brief and then have it covered by, you know, the, the national media. Uh, but in any event, uh, so, so then Judge uh, Judkins' order denying absolute immunity to the former president uh, from uh, prosecution for his offenses in and around January 6th, it it went to the Supreme Court, bypassing initially the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, because uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith uh, asked the Supreme Court to expedite consideration. The Supreme Court uh, eventually uh, declined uh, Jack Smith's request, and then returning the matter to the, the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit had already scheduled argument for, for the, the immunity question in, uh, in, on January 8th, I, I believe. So that's just to, to, to give your listeners sort of the procedural posture of it and, and, and the back, background. Uh, so we, we focused really on one single argument that, uh, interestingly to us, and to your listeners as well, uh, Jack Smith and the Department of Justice had not made and have not made formally yet, although it has begun to tease out our theory uh, in in other filings, which are of no relevance to us today. So what, what we decided was that that well let me let me back up and say for your listeners 
the Supreme Court has never decided the question of whether a, a, a president is immune from uh, prosecution, a criminal prosecution, um, after he leaves office. Um, that said, uh, for those of us who have, have followed the presidency uh, for 50 years, in my case, uh, and, 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 and the legal issues surrounding the constitutional issues surrounding the presidency, uh, I have never had any doubt whatsoever that a president is never entitled to absolute immunity from prosecution for criminal offenses against the United States. The Supreme Court has never said otherwise, but in in the cases, only several cases that it has decided uh, in, in both the uh, criminal and civil context, it, it has left open the, the possibility that it might hold someday that in some context, a president would be immune from criminal prosecution. So that's where the, 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 the that's the state of the law at, at the moment. So for instance, my colleagues who I worked on this brief with, they were very conscious that perhaps the Supreme Court might hold that the former president is immune from, from prosecution. And I said in our, in our internal discussions that I didn't believe that there would be a single justice who, who would hold that. And of course, it remains to be seen. So with that background, here's what we said in the brief. We said that wherever else, in whatever context, a a president might be immune from prosecution, he or she cannot be immune from prosecution for the offense of violating the executive vesting clause of the Constitution in an attempt to uh, remain in power and deny the peaceful transfer of power, which is exactly what the former president did. Now, the, the reason that, so as soon as we've, had filed that brief in the district court, uh, you know, I explained on Twitter my theory that that is the the insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States that gives rise to the former president's disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So so I, that's a lot of legalese. I apologize, but let me just, for, for your lay listeners, just spit it out <laughs> clearly. On the, in the immunity context, we argued for the first time, and to date, no one, including the government, has argued this at all, that a president can never be immune from prosecution 
for uh, in, in for an attempt to overturn a presidential election rem- and remain in power, notwithstanding that the American people had had uh, voted for uh, his successor, and uh, then I have since made the argument that I just spelled out in in in, in particular that that same conduct, if you will, is what constitutes an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States for purposes of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, yielding the president's disqualification under the 14th Amendment from uh, holding the presidency in 2024. So can you talk a little bit about the clause? I think it's Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1. Uh, uh, about uh, because you you are defending here what you call a strong presidency, and and within that subsumed within that is the idea that a president serves a four year term, and I believe uh, what you were getting at is that it particularly in this context, regardless of whether the Supreme Court believes that there is some sort of criminal immunity in other contexts which we don't know about yet. Uh, or haven't thought of yet, or haven't heard or litigated, that within this context, that would kind of destroy the idea of a four-year term, of a president serving a a four-year term, right? That's exactly right, Allison. And uh, it's neither here nor there, but, but, you know, I'm as certain, as absolutely certain of this constitutional argument as I've been of any argument in, in, in 50 years. Wow. You, you know, judge, we have, uh, kind of jokingly, but not really joking referred to this in previous episodes. Well, as soon as, as, uh, Trump made the argument, we referred to it as the, not the immunity motion, but the monarchy motion. And the idea of, um, absolute immunity for criminal acts while you're president uh, is just, it it seems even to the uh, certainly far less sophisticated constitutional scholars like uh, Allison and I and many of our listeners, it's just so inherently um, contrary to everything we think of when we think about the framers and why they constructed the Constitution in the way that they did and their concerns about creating a a president who essentially served like the monarch who they were trying to get away from. And I think that your argument really uh, puts a fine point on on those thoughts because you make it very clear that the vesting clause absolutely requires a president to leave the presidency after four years if they are not reelected. And given the ability to, the immunity to commit crimes to remain in power undermines that entire idea. That, that's, that's exactly right, Andrew. And, and, and you're, you're uh, far too modest about both yours and Allison's understanding of, of, of the constitution. Um, but here, here's another way that I've thought about it, and I and, and I would urge you to think about it this way. Um, as you and your listeners know, I, I never speak a word other than law. <laughs> okay, 
uh, in public. So much so that I don't remember ever uttering the phrase that uh, that everyone has, has said many times over, that no man is above the law. But for the first time in, in my career, I have stated that with respect to the issue that we're talking about today. It captures what what we've long meant and understood by the phrase, no man is above the law. Okay? No other argument that the former presidents made have I been willing to say publicly this is what that adage <laughs> Uh, stands for now. Now to to, to uh, dig deeper into what you just uh, began to tease out, um, it, it would be very interesting for your listeners to know that 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 it is probably the the probably the 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 greatest concern and and the subject of the greatest discussion by the framers our, of our constitution was a demagogue in the presidency. Uh, if you go back through the Federalist Papers, all of the ratification discussions and debate, the, the single greatest concern was that America might someday uh, come to have a, a demagogue as president because that person, and this is the founders and the framers talking, not, not me, because that person would play on the passions, the irrational, unreasoned passions of the populace in order to secure their votes for his or her presidency. That is, that a demagogue would come along uh, and, and, and appeal to the American voters, not on the basis of their reason, but instead on the basis of their passions. That's what Donald Trump has done to a fairly well. That's right. Yeah. And Peter Baker pointed out that Jefferson foresaw the danger uh, of a president who refuses to cede power when he said, quote, if once elected and at a second or third election outvoted by one or two votes, he will pretend false votes, foul play, hold possession of the reins of government and be supported by the state's voting for him. So this, right, this was all foretold. And and Judge, the way that you feel about the uh, no one is above the law, I feel the same way about the 14th Amendment, that if it's not designed for this particular situation and this particular man, then who is it for? And I want to talk more about that, plus some of the arguments the former president has made but we do need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Everybody, welcome back. We are talking with Judge J. Michael Ludig about his amicus brief and about the immunity case uh, going up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And Judge, I would like to, um, you, you had briefly mentioned the, you know, talking about no one is above the law in the face of some of the arguments that the former president is making. And in his December 23rd filing with the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, his arguments are basically the same arguments that he's been making, that his he should have immunity for uh, official acts, those that fall within the outer perimeter of his official responsibilities. And uh, he talks about the impeachment judgment clause, which in my opinion is also very silly. Um, do you think that the 11th Circuit ruling written by Judge Pryor in the Mark Meadows removal case could have any impact here? I know that the 11th Circuit is a different circuit, but doesn't the Supreme Court generally resolve issues when circuit courts are in, a, in some kind of disagreement. And I don't see any circuit court here conflicting with what Judge Chutkin ruled in, in, the, in the immunity case. Yeah, yeah, yes. Just, uh, Allison, the, I would re respond this way. There is not an argument in the world 
that's ever been espoused by an individual or held by a court of the United States that even suggests that a president would be absolutely immune from criminal prosecution. I don't believe for one second that the D.C. Circuit will hold otherwise. I don't believe that a single justice on the Supreme Court would hold otherwise. And in fact, when this D.C. Circuit rejects the former president's claim to absolute immunity, I would expect the Supreme Court to deny cert on the appeal, former president's appeal to the Supreme Court. That's my hope. <laughs> that's that's been my dream scenario from the jump. Is that- yeah, Allison's been rooting for that for weeks now. <laughs> so I'm sure a lot, of, uh, a lot of our listeners will be happy to hear that prediction. Can you talk to us for just a minute about his argument? I can't believe I'm characterizing it as that, but his, his argument that he's essentially immune from prosecution unless he's been convicted by the Senate in an impeachment proceeding. It seems like just connecting two things that were never meant to be connected. That's how that's how I look at it in a very simple way. You're, you're right, Andrew. Let, let me go back, though, and, and pick up uh, a, a piece of uh, Allison's question that I didn't did not respond to. Uh, and that is uh, the question whether in in his conduct in attempting to overturn the election the president was acting within the scope of his responsibilities or within the outer boundaries of 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 the, his responsibilities as the 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 test legal test is the dc circuit when it decided the civil immunity question said that the president was not acting within his constitutional responsibilities uh, on January 6th. And the D.C. Circuit held on December 1st that, um, that the civil suit brought by the Capitol Police officers against the former president could proceed because he did not have immune, he was not immune from suit or, or liability. Here's my point. That night, uh, I tweeted or whatever you do these days <laughs> that the reasoning of the DC circuit in rejecting the, the president, former president's civil immunity claim is exactly the same reasoning that also uh, tells us that he is not immune from criminal prosecution for the same conduct. Uh, And I think, you know, I've just been amazed, frankly, that anyone reads anything I I write, but, but I think I remember that when I said that, that tweet had half a million views um, overnight, and 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 I re-upped it this week, and and I know that it has around half a million uh, views this week. So, but the point, the again, it's just 
there are layers and layers of constitutional law and decisions by the federal courts that tell us that this is not even a difficult question at all and that there's no chance in this world that the president will be uh, afforded uh, absolute immunity from prosecution. We saw this in in Judge Pryor's 11th Circuit uh, explanation. It's not the job of the executive, whether it's the chief of staff or the president, to involve themselves in the administration of elections. That belongs to the state's uh, which is why it's going to be difficult, I think, for SCOTUS to deny uh, what the Colorado Supreme Court uh, came up with. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they quoted um, Sandlin, Morvey, Harper, uh, all, all sorts of, of Supreme Court decisions uh, that that show that that it is not the job at all of any of the president or the or his chief of staff, and they mentioned the pre- the former president too, or n- not by name. Uh, to, to get involved in, in elections. That's that's the state's job. And uh, I think that that is going to be uh, interesting to see how that comes out when we talk about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That, that's, you know, and uh, our friend Ryan Lizza earlier this week asked me for a quote uh, when, when it was revealed that uh, uh, there had been other calls to the Michigan uh, officials trying to overturn the election, asked me to respond to, to that, and, and I did. But the former president's spokesperson, whoever it was, had said that that uh, those calls or, or contacts uh, were within the, 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 the former president's official duties as president of the United States. And so um, in, in my quote that I gave Ryan, um, you know, I said uh, they were not at all within the scope of the president's uh, responsibilities to interfere with a presidential election in the way that he did. Uh, Let me go back to Andrew's uh, uh, question because it's important. Um, It's not as as the critics have uh, presented it, but it's otherwise a a very serious question, as you know, Andrew. And and, and it's it's really the question of whether uh, Section three is self-executing, uh, or if instead it requires congressional action, or a a, a literally a, a conviction uh, of the offense of insurrection under under twenty three eighty three, Title eighteen twenty three eighty three. Um, professors Bode and Paulson, who who did the original comprehensive. Uh, historical research on Section 3 uh, determined that that it was self-executing, that it did not require congressional action or a conviction. And then my friend, uh, uh, the most gifted constitutional scholar of our time, uh, Larry Tribe, and I tore into the, uh, the professor's research and uh, within a week or so had uh, had written an article in uh, the Atlantic, you know, saying that the professors were absolutely right in every single respect, uh, and that the president, former president, is disqualified under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and we have, uh, uh, and that's that's really what it has ignited uh, um, what we have today. But the serious question, Andrew, is the one that you asked about. Is it self-executing? 
Now, you know, we don't have time to go into all the details, but suffice it to say that uh, under under constitutional analysis and interpretation, uh, there is no question in my mind or in Professor Tribes that it is self-executing. Uh, it doesn't require congressional action uh, for three or four doctrinal reasons that I could explain today for you. Um, and uh, uh, I don't believe that it uh, uh, that the Supreme Court will will ever hold that 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 it does. That that brings me to one the one on, and only point that I wanted to be sure and make uh, on on your uh, show today, which I've uh, gone to great lengths to make publicly for a while now, but especially uh, last week. Uh, you know the the claim that disqualification under the 14th Amendment is anti-democratic. That's the hue and cry that's come up um, in, in, in the past few weeks, not just by the uh, former president and his supporters, but as of last week, by the national media. Uh, I was so uh, uh, upset about this coming from the national media uh, that um, I went on uh, Ali Velshi's show at MSNBC uh, to, to make the point for the country, the constitutional point, not the political point, not the democracy point, the constitutional point that it is uh, not disqualification that is anti-democratic. Rather, it is the conduct that can give rise to disqualification that the framers of our Constitution determined was anti-democratic. Uh, I was di very disappointed in the national media, uh, and and and, uh, and and Ali uh, pulled out uh, Charlie Savage's uh, piece from the New York Times that was, you know lamenting uh, that the anti-democratic uh, nature, if the Supreme Court were to disqualify the former president. But I, I just wanted to, you know, make that one point to your listeners, because uh, it, it's not just a large P political point. It is a constitutional point. I think that is so important because a lot of the conversation around both of these issues, the immunity issue and the 14th Amendment uh, disqualification issue, have, have kind of devolved to that, oh, it's just not – it's it's anti-democratic that people don't get to vote for who they want. Or the other the other argument I hear a lot, which is, gee, just – it's not – it doesn't seem fair. It violates fundamental fairness to disqualify the guy for something that he wasn't convicted of. And the, the point of both of those issues to me is this is not about some esoteric individual view on fair play, let's have an even playing field. This is about doing things in the way that is consistent with our constitution. That's what's fair. That's what's democratic. Those are the rules that we all follow, not these individualistic concepts of fair play and what maybe he should have or shouldn't have. There's only one standard here, and it is what the Constitution defines for us. And I think 
a lot of people have a hard time embracing that. Yeah, idea. That's, uh, you know, right before I, I, I came on with you, someone had sent me a, a tweet by uh, some person named um, Ari Fleischer, I think. Uh, and, and, and they said he was a, a spokesman for a former president or something. Uh, and and he had said today uh, that I mean he just went on this screed I mean this singularly irresponsible if he is or was a public figure uh, he he was claiming that the 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 plaintiffs in in Maine and in Colorado were insurrectionists. Wow. By bringing this claim under the Fourteenth Amendment, that the president, former president, is disqualified for having engaged in an insurrection. Uh, like I say, I don't know Ari, and if I've even got his name right, but but someone sent that to me, and I was uh, astonished. If if that's a a, a public person uh, uh, saying that today. But that's emblematic, uh, uh, Allison and, and Andrew, of, frankly, the, the, the uh, political response, the savage political response by the Republicans and the former president. Yeah. So can we ask you one last very quick question before before we go? You've been very clear about how you think the D.C. Circuit will come out on the immunity issue. And, and you, you told us that you think it's likely if they deny it, that the Supreme Court would, would not even take the case. How do you think the court will handle the now kind of bubbling up of the 14th Amendment issue through these various state decisions. I guess we have had three now in, Col in uh, Colorado, Michigan, and uh, at least a decision by the Secretary of State in Maine yesterday, and it seems we have some variants there. The uh, first procedurally, before we the Maine Secretary of State's decision uh, last night, uh, or whatever it was, I was thinking that the Supreme Court might deny review of the Colorado case on the reasoning, which it would never provide, that the uh, under the electors and electors clauses of the Constitution, uh, the states arguably have uh, unreviewable power uh, to place on the primary ballot uh uh for uh for the presidency in anyone that would be qualified under state law to be put on that ballot uh if the supreme court had had only decided whether to take uh the colorado case and denied review that would have led to chaos during the primary season but the supreme court typically doesn't take and certainly never takes a momentous case until or unless it has to. And and I think that I was thinking the court might well deny cert. Uh, but when the, the main decision came in, I believe that the Supreme Court now will take the question. And I think it 
probably ought to take the question, what will it do? You know, you guys have been at this as long as I have, and, and I'm coming at it from the, the perspective of, of a, a federal judge. Uh, I, I, I never predict what the Supreme Court might do, but I, I'm, I'm, whenever I'm, I feel comfortable, uh, I, I do say that um, based upon the objective law, in this instance, the 14th Amendment, uh, I, I believe that the court should affirm the Colorado case and and the, and the Michigan and, and the Michigan's uh, um, Secretary of State's decision uh, for all the reasons that I've said publicly and and all of those that are included in uh, the Professor Bode and Paulson's uh, article. I don't believe that under the constitutional law of the Fourteenth Amendment that there is any question, but that the uh, Section 3 applies to the former president and that that he engaged in an insurrectional rebellion or at least provided aid or comfort uh, to to that, that insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States. Um, and and I have said that publicly as a consequence of, of my uh, conviction uh, on the law. I never talk about the vagaries of the of the judicial process, and uh, I leave that to others. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I I agree. I think they should. Uh, I I am I'm in the camp that I think 100 uh, percent immunity criminal immunity isn't going to make it, but I'm not so sure about the 14th Amendment, and and it only has to do with some of the, I guess, consistency issues that uh, I've seen with um, with this particular court. But we will we will see. Uh, the default is he's on the ballot, so uh, in in both Maine and Colorado. Uh, unless a higher court weighs in. So maybe they will, maybe they won't. Uh, if they do, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Uh, but uh, we really appreciate your insight today. Uh, Judge, is there anything else that you would like to to say to our listeners before we let you go? No, except this, Allison and, and, and Andrew. This is your and our constitution. If the former president is to be disqualified, it's the Constitution of the United States. It is our Constitution that's disqualifying him. It's not Joe Biden. It's not the Democrats. It's not the insurrectionist plaintiffs, as Ari Fleischer said today. It's the Constitution of the United States. And that's why I've said in the past week that uh, first the Colorado case and, and now the, the, uh, uh, the main case uh, will be the test of America's commitment to its democracy, its Constitution, and to the rule of law. Such an important point. Uh, Judge, and I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, to to 
reinforce that with our listeners and to make us smarter on all these issues. We can't thank you enough. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much, everybody. Judge J. Michael Ludig, stick around. We'll be right back after this brief message. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. AG, let's talk about Jack Smith's latest filing in the D.C. case, uh, and that's the government's motion in limine, better known as the motion in lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, as we all know, the proceedings in this case are stayed pending the outcome of the immunity issue. You'll remember last week, Jack Smith submitted more discovery and an exhibit list, and Donald Trump's attorneys wrote back reminding the government that the case was stayed and then informing them that they would not be accepting the production. I think they've just ignored it, and it's probably still sitting on their front porch. But yeah, We're not going to read it. We're not even going to open it. How dare do, you? Do not let that box in my office. Uh, okay, so in this new motion, DOJ opens with the following footnote. Quote, the court has determined that the deadlines in the pretrial order are held in abeyance, while the defendant's appeal of the denial of certain of his motions to dismiss are pending. Nonetheless, to provide the court and defendant notice and to promote the prompt resumption of the pretrial schedule if and when the mandate returns, the government will continue to meet its own deadlines as previously determined by the court. Hmm. Yeah, a little bit of a slap back there, right, <laughs> to, the, to the Trump lawyers. 
Right. Dear Molly and what, what was it? Wyndham? <laughs> yeah. John, right? John. Dear Molly and John. Uh, dear John. He wrote a Dear John letter, literally. That's right. That's exactly right. So a motion in limine asks a judge to exclude certain inadmissible evidence and testimony before the trial begins so each side knows what's off limits. So this is a way of like ahead of time setting up the boundaries. Like a prosecutor will come in and say, you know, judge, you shouldn't let the let the defendant introduce any testimony about X because X is not relevant and it's prejudicial and it'll make the, take the jury off in the wrong direction. And so please tell them now ahead of time, you can't talk about X. That's basically how it works. In this case, in this filing, DOJ says, evidence is not relevant upon a party's mere say-so. It must be connected to the charges in the indictment or to a legitimate defense supported by sufficient evidence. See United States versus Easter Day. And the proponent of the evidence bears the burden of establishing relevancy. That's from United States versus Ozegura Gonzalez. With that in mind, Jack Smith asks Judge Chutkin to prevent three main categories of evidence and argument. Yep, he sure does. First category is evidence and argument that does not bear on guilt or innocence, which is basically everything that Donald Trump says. Uh, (laughs) DOJ writes, following his indictment in the district, a defendant has made unsupported and politicized claims of selective and vindictive prosecution, indicated that he intends to explore irrelevant issues related to the government's investigation, and complained that the grand jury's indictment and the court's trial date will interfere with his political activities. None of these issues goes to the defendant's guilt or innocence. All of them should be excluded. <laughs> so I'm, I'm taking that he does not hold a high opinion of his <laughs> of of the defendant's anticipated defenses. <laughs> yeah. So f- first up, the court should prohibit the defendant from introducing evidence, making arguments, or framing questions to advance a theory of selective or vindictive prosecution, or to otherwise improperly inject politics into the trial. The defendant has levied the false accusation that the indictment returned by a grand jury of citizens of this district on a finding of probable cause was was directed (laughs) by the current president as a form of election interference. In addition to being wrong, these allegations are irrelevant to the jury's determination of the defendant's guilt or innocence, would be prejudicial if presented to the jury and must be excluded. And then DOJ cites U.S. v. Armstrong here saying, quote, a selective prosecution claim is not a defense on the merits to the criminal charge itself. And he goes on to say, for the same reasons, the defendant should be precluded from raising irrelevant political issues or arguments in front of the jury. Next up, because, you know, vindictive selective prosecution is something that you figure out pretrial, but pretrial motions. If you're denied, then you shut up about it. You can't bring it into court. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You may try to raise it again on appeal if you're convicted, (laughs) but hey, let's hear that in round three, four, whatever that is. So those are the kinds of things that the prosecution team would object to if Trump tried to bring them up, provided Judge Chutkin here, uh, once the trial is no longer in abeyance, grants these motions in limine. Now, next up, uh, Jack Smith says, quote, the court should prohibit the defendant from trying to baselessly inject politics into the trial in the name of, quote, impeaching the, quote, investigation. (laughs) No snark there. Uh, Through his groundless demand for discovery of evidence regarding investigative misconduct, in quotes, the defendant has suggested that he intends to impeach the integrity of the investigation by raising wholly false claims 
such as the government's non-existent, quote, coordination with the Biden administration, unquote, and other empty allegations recycled from the selective and vindictive prosecution motion that he based on anonymous sources in newspaper articles. <laughs> wow. A guy told me. Some guy. I don't remember. <laughs> Called me with tears in his eyes. He said, sir, it's a vindictive prosecution. <laughs> he was crying. Uh, although He goes on to say, although the defendant is entitled to cross-examine the government's law enforcement witnesses about matters fairly within the scope of their direct testimony, he cannot raise wholly irrelevant topics in an effort to confuse and distract the jury. Much as the defendant would like it otherwise, this trial should be about the facts and the law, not politics. That's not fun. <laughs> it really is not. Okay. Boring. <laughs> you would never be you would never beat the apprentice. Mm-hmm. Also, the court should prohibit the defendant from arguing to the jury any legal issues properly reserved for the court, meaning his immunity, his double jeopardy, and First Amendment claims. Any attempt to suggest or argue that the, to the jury that it should acquit him based on principles of immunity or the First Amendment would usurp the court's role to decide legal issues and invite impermissible jury nullification. So these are things for the court to decide, not for the jury. Shut your mouth. That's right. And the court should prohibit evidence, questions, or arguments regarding potential consequences of the defendant's criminal case. Consequences. Stuff like how the election would be impacted or his personal profession or his finances, how that would be impacted. Those aren't ever considered in any other criminal trial, and they shouldn't be considered here either. So that is something else he wants to keep out of court. I'm just imagining, and I know this is crazy because he probably doesn't read any of this stuff, but could you imagine what is, what, what's his, re, what's Trump's reaction if he reads this filing? Like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't say anything. These guys, this is everything I was going to say. That's all my stuff. That's everything I have. <laughs> okay. In category number two. So the second category that Jack Smith seeks to exclude is Irrelevant and prejudicial evidence and argument regarding January 6, 2021. So DOJ writes, throughout this litigation and, his, and in his public comments, the defendant has sought to blame others for the attack on the Capitol for which he is responsible, including law enforcement, military forces, unidentified secret agents, and foreign influence. The defendant should be precluded from introducing within the courtroom the disinformation he has propagated outside of it. I like that line. Yeah, me too. Under this category, Jack Smith seeks to exclude evidence regarding agency preparation for and responses on January 6th. He says, the defendant has signaled his intention to blame the events of January 6th on the Capitol Police, the National Guard, and the district's mayor. This defense strategy is factually false and precluded by the rules of evidence. As a legal matter, the alleged shortcomings of law enforcement do not sanction the defendant's criminal conduct. A bank robber cannot defend himself by blaming the bank's security guard for failing to stop him. <laughs> a fraud defendant cannot claim to the jury that his victims should have known better than to fall for this scheme. And the defendant cannot argue that law enforcement should have prevented the violence he caused and obstruction he intended. Strong words. There. They are not pulling any punches nope. from this thing. Nope. Yeah, that's what happens when you write them a letter saying we're not going to accept your discovery. The next motion really punches you right in the nose, apparently. <laughs> that's the way that works. Okay. Also under this category, the court should exclude evidence regarding purported undercover officers or government sources at the Capitol. Quote, 
In cases in this district in which January 6 defendants have sought to use such evidence, courts have found that such evidence is irrelevant unless defendants can establish that an undercover actor affected the defendant's actions or mental state. There is certainly no evidence that the defendant here had contact with or knew of any undercover actor anywhere on January 6th, and certainly not at the Capitol, where the defendant promised his supporters he would join them. No such actor, therefore, quote, could have affected or did affect his conduct or state of mind. I think that's a really interesting analysis. They're obviously relying on direct precedent from this district, Mm -hmm. which is always a good thing. But it really gets to the heart of this issue. Like this smoke and mirrors about, oh, FBI informants. They were all FBI informants. They weren't really Trump supporters. Um, that's not that's not a an actual legal defense. And so right. Think- so like unless a January 6th defendant, like a boots on the ground defendant was like, well, I ran into this guy exactly. and I was going to go home, but he told me to break this window with my fist right? Exactly. and crush this officer in a door. You have to identify the the alleged uh, secret agent. You have mm-hmm. to, and what they told you and how what they told you or what they did or what they showed you impacted your mental state. That's clearly, that's never going to happen here. So the filing goes on to say, allowing the defendant to introduce evidence about undercover actors would inevitably lead to confusing mini-trials on collateral issues, such as the identities and intentions of the alleged undercover actors. For example, it may require the government to introduce evidence to show that people whom the defendant alleges were undercover actors actually were his vehement supporters. (laughs) It's the hall of mirrors, this guy. I love that. I love that. It's like we would have to have these mini trials and we would embarrass him. That's right. That's right. So next, Jack Smith wants to exclude evidence of alleged foreign influence. I love this part. And they say, the defendant has indicated that he intends to introduce evidence of foreign influence in the 2020 presidential election to show that, one, he was personally tricked by foreign disinformation and or, two, the January 6th riot resulted from, quote, efforts by foreign actors to influence public opinion, close quote. Such evidence should be excluded as irrelevant and a confusing sideshow. As to any claim that the defendant was fooled by foreign influence, absent a concrete showing that the defendant, one, relied in good faith on, two, specific foreign disinformation, when, three, making a particular false claim, Such evidence will be irrelevant to the defendant's mens rea and will only distract the jury from issues properly before it. Next, any argument that foreign actors, rather than the defendant, and his ceaseless, knowingly false claims of election fraud, were responsible for inflaming his followers and causing the Capitol riot is nothing more than an infirm third-party guilt defense. The defendant has not pointed to a single piece of evidence indicating that foreign influence, rather than his own lies, motivated rioters on January 6th. And in any event, whether others, be they civilians or foreign actors, said untrue things on the internet does not exonerate the defendant for the lies that he told to his followers or the criminal steps he took to illegally retain power. Jack Smith also wants to exclude evidence of post-crime changes to election law, and this would include arguing the fact that we had to shore up the Electoral Count Act, and that somehow proves that he's innocent. 
I'm so glad that he brought this up. I've been talking about this ever since like Susan Collins was like, I love the idea of shoring up the Electoral Count Act. And Ted Cruz was like, yeah, we should shore up the Electoral Count Act. I'm like, they're setting up a defense. They're setting up a vague statutory defense that the ECA was so confusing and vague and and Trump has tweeted this or put it out on True Social so many times. We had to update the law. It's so confusing and vague. We had to update it. So I couldn't have broken it. It was broken, not me. Nobody I didn't could break have it. figured it out. It's and I've been saying this from, to the, understand. Yeah. from the jump, man. So I'm yeah. so glad that he wants to exclude that ridiculous argument uh, from trial. The final category of evidence Jack Smith wants to ex- exclude is a miscellaneous category, other improper evidence. This is big. It includes inadmissible testimony regarding the defendant's alleged state of mind. Uh, Jack Smith says the defendant's state of mind during the charge conspiracies will be a key issue at trial. Both parties will introduce circumstantial evidence of the defendant's state of mind, and the defendant may choose to testify himself about his own state of mind, right? Mm-hmm. But the defendant should be precluded from eliciting speculative testimony from any witness other than himself about the defendant's state of mind or beliefs about the election on or his claims of election fraud. In the particular circumstances here, such testimony would go to an ultimate issue before the jury's consideration, and it would be speculative, unhelpful to the jury, unfairly prejudicial, and should thus be excluded. So that means he can't be like, well, Rick Grinnell here says that I've believed I lost. You know, you yeah. can't. And Jimmy Two Shoes from down the street, <laughs> who I saw at breakfast this morning, he says he thinks I really believed it. There's no limit to the number of witnesses that he could attempt to drag in front of the jury to say all kinds of unfounded things about, oh, yeah, I follow him on Twitter. And from my reading of his Twitter, this is what right. I think he believed. So um, I think they're trying to cut that one off at the pass. They may, I'm not sure they'll get it, but it's. I think it's a point well raised. Yeah, I, some of these things I'm. I'm sure. I, at least I've seen before. Is the judge is like, I'm not going to bar it now, but we'll we'll deal with it when it gets to court. Yeah, yeah. He's. I mean, they're taking a very aggressive tact here. They're they're mm-hmm. taking a, a a a cleaver to the heart of a lot of Trump's likely defenses. And if they get if they get rulings on half of this stuff, they'll have made a lot of progress. Yeah, I'm reminded of Hunter Biden's motion in limine saying that uh, they don't want any evidence presented at trial that shows that Hunter Biden was living a lavish lifestyle. Right. And that reminded me of Manafort's lavish lifestyle. And the the prosecution in, in the Manafort case wanted to bring that in. And of course, Manafort didn't want it brought in. And the judge in that case said, Let's deal with it at trial. And then when trial happened and they started showing the ostrich jacket and the $2 million suits and the shoes and the whatever, the judge was like, all right, enough. You know, (laughs) his lavish lifestyle is not on trial here. And the prosecutor's like, okay. And so they went forward. So that's how a lot of this stuff works out. Being being barred pre-trial is is a pretty tough hill to climb, but that doesn't mean it won't be objected to and sustained during the trial. Right. Now, last in the miscellaneous category is cross-examination attempting to elicit irrelevant protected information. This is really interesting. Jack Smith says the government anticipates calling witnesses with knowledge of information protected by certain privileges, including attorney client privilege and the speech or debate privilege. Oh, look at that. If questioned about such information, those witnesses reasonably could assert the privilege that attaches. The defendant should be precluded from questioning witnesses 
about otherwise protected information on cross-examination unless he receives preclearance from the court. So basically, Andrew, if Trump lawyers cross-examine someone and ask them something they know they can't answer because of a privilege, it could look like that witness lacks candor or is hiding something from the jury, which would cause undue prejudice. So they want preclearance on that. And let's talk a little bit about the privilege here, because it makes sense, the attorney-client privilege. They're going to bring a lot of lawyers in. They're Mm -hmm. going to bring probably the Pats, Cipollone and Philbin, Hirschman, you know, and then Trump, Trump's lawyers could ask Hirschman like, well, what did you talk with Trump about? Or, you know, when you had a Mm -hmm. discussion with so-and-so, what did you say? And then Hirschman would have to say, that's attorney-client privilege information. I can't give that. And that could make the jury think, oh, he's not forthcoming. Yeah, it's almost kind of like a witness invoking their Fifth Amendment privilege in front of the grand jury. Mm-hmm. It's entirely, it's lawful, it's appropriate, it's that's your right. But it also leaves a, a, ta- a bad taste in the mouth of the grand jurors that you are worried about some criminal liability you might face. This is a, a slightly uh, more relaxed version of that. I think, you know, you've, you've teed it up well. Anybody who invokes a privilege in front of the jury, it, it you know inevitably leads those jurors to start drawing conclusions about why aren't they talking more freely? Why aren't they being forthcoming? As far as the the attorney client privilege, it could, as you said, there could be any number of attorneys. I likely will be a bunch of attorneys who end up testifying, and so if they're asked questions about communications they had with people that. Uh, were clients, they would have to invoke the privilege. But it also applies to any of those other people who have attorneys. It could be just random Joe witness who happens to hired an attorney to help him prepare for this appearance or advise him on it or whatever. And if, if Trump's attorneys phrase the question in a particular way that calls for, well, did you ask your attorney if you'd done anything wrong? Right. Right. Then, then the then the person, the witness, has to say or can say, "Well, what I said, what I said to my attorney is privileged, and I'm I'm not going to share that with you." Then the jury's like, "Oh, maybe he did ask if if he'd done something wrong, and the attorney said he had." So there's all kinds of uh, ways that the attorney-client privilege could cause that problem. Then the other, the frankly more interesting one is speech and debate. It looks like somebody's planning to put some members of Congress on the witness yeah. stand, right? Yeah. And a lot of folks on Twitter are like, oh, are they going to call Marjorie Taylor Greene or are they going to put Rep. Scott Perry up there? And I'm not so sure about that. I think these will probably be more friendlies, um, of, of course. Um, and a lot of people kind of forget there was a whole battle for speech or debate privilege with the former vice president, That's Mike right. Pence. That is right. He was he didn't have to hand over his discussions with the Senate parliamentarian about the or his um, lawyer about the language that he was changing uh, when he you know called for the envelopes to open and count. He changed that language. He had discussions with the Senate parliamentarian. Judge Beryl House said that's um, speech or debate. That's covered by the privilege because you were acting in your your role as president of the Senate that day. So I think that a lot of this probably has to do with Pence because they don't want on cross-examination Trump to ask Pence about discussions he had with his lawyer or discussions he had with the parliamentarian under either the privilege, uh, speech or debate privilege or the attorney-client privilege uh, to, to, to try to impeach 
the former vice president as as a witness. Um, so th- that's one person that comes right to the front of my mind with the speech or debate issue. Yeah, and I think that's the most um, that's really the most challenging one, right? Because that the line of that's what's protected by speech or debate and what's not for Pence. If you get right down, you you very well would want to ask him questions about what he said, what he did, people he talked to on January 6th while he was trying to certify the election. And he's going to have to weave in and out of that very carefully. And anytime he claims the privilege, then the defense attorneys are like, oh, you're telling the government, but you won't tell us, you know, kind of makes it look one-sided and kind of like a rigged game. Um, certainly a juror could conclude that. So yeah, this is an, this is an interesting one. I also thought it was, it was, um, notable that what he asked for was not that it be absolutely prohibited and excluded from trial, but that he has to pre-clear it first. It's almost an acknowledgement that like, this is a big ask. It's going to be challenging. We know we're going to have to fight over this later. I'm just putting it on your radar now so we can be all, um, you know, on notice of it. Yeah, and I imagine the judge is going to be like, there's simply no way that that anyone can pre-clear every question they could think to ask no. during cross-examination. So no. I'm not going to rec- – I, I imagine she will not require a, a pre-clearance, uh, but again, that it will be something that will uh, happen at in trial as it happens. And then, of course, she I think she will also say, I will be instructing the jury not to take a negative inference when somebody has to. Right give those um because i've seen this happen in court right they 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 let them ask the questions and then they object and then they're sustained and then the the jury is told do not you know when they are given the instructions you may not you shall not hold a negative inference for anybody who didn't answer questions under these privileges right for example that's right. kind of how i probably see this going um because to outright just ban everything or have preclearance on every question is just not not possible. It's kind of not feasible. But you but you know, this is the motions eliminate. You ask for the moon and you get the stars. That's yeah, exactly. Kind of the- it's like a negotiation, right? You don't ask right. for what you want. You ask for twice what you want. You hope you <laughs> yeah. settle somewhere to what you need. Yep, yep. All right, we have a couple of listener questions and a, a quick update down in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. But we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry, 
We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We've got a little bit of an update down in Judge Eileen Cannonland also known as Palm Beach County, Florida. <laughs> the place uh, and we... prosecutions go to stall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the trial will be in 2028. Uh, all right. So there's a, oddly enough, a speedy trial report to down, down in Florida. And here's what it said. This is uh, filed by the Department of Justice. And in a footnote, um, counsel for defendants Nauta, Trump, and De Oliveira reviewed this filing and have authorized the government to re- represent that they concur. Oh boy! With it. Good we have agreement. Holy, we God. have an agreement. You so know, here's it's the this- holiday season. It's a time for peace and joy, and so even the most warring clans come together and join hands over a speedy trial report. Yes, yes, it is, uh, Max. And the Grinch, the Grinch and his dog have come together. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, so Jack Smith writes, pursuant to local rule 88.5 and the court's omnibus order setting trial date and establishing pretrial instructions and sentencing procedures, both of which require the filing of speedy trial reports, the U.S. hereby files this speedy trial report regarding the status of this case under the Speedy Trial Act of 1984. That's Title 18 U.S. Code Section 3161. Number one. In its uh, July 21st order, granting in part the government's motion to continue trial and resetting deadlines, the court excluded all of the time between the date of that order and the trial date, May 20th, 2024. By order, dated August 21st, 2023, the court extended its earlier order to defendant De Oliveira. And last, by order dated September 13th, 2023, the court confirmed that the same speedy trial clock applies to each defendant. Everybody's included. Of course uh, That it has been told until May 20th, 2024, and that 70 days remain on the speedy trial clock. So that's it. 70 days out of 100. Is it 100 or 90? Oh, I think it's 90. I don't want to guess because I'll be wrong, but it's one of the two. I mean, you know. only only th- I think it's 100, and I think – only 30 days now have told in the speedy trial clock. Yeah. And it is told until May 20th yeah. of 2024. And just to be just to be clear, time that's excluded is time that actually happened in real life but doesn't count against the speedy trial clock. So it's like free time. It's like uh time out. Right? Yeah. Suspended animation. And tolling is the same thing. So 
Yeah, basically, this court is the place where time doesn't happen. <laughs> basically, <laughs> I guess is what I mean. I feel like when I started reading this, I thought I wouldn't be surprised if it's really short. If the entirety of the report is nothing is happening and everything's too slow. <laughs> Yours truly, Jack Smith. Yeah, well, considering the indictment was well, like six months ago or something, yeah. and and only thirty days have told on the speedy trial clock, that that tells you a lot. Right, right. Yeah. It's rough. So that's all that we have. We don't have any uh, decisions uh, on uh, any of the other uh, motions. Like we're waiting for that SEPA section for you know how Trump wants to get in on the ex parte in camera action and wants Nauda and De Oliveira to be able to see all the classified documents. We don't have a decision on that yet, Roger. Uh, we'll 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 update you when we get it uh, sometime next year. So, what do we have this week for questions, Andy? Well, I'm glad you asked, as I am every week. Uh, great <laughs> questions this week again. Awesome comments, people who are just writing in things that they think about the show. Um, I'm going to read one of the, uh, just a shout out really to um, a listener from Hungary named Andras, who sent us a really long note. Um, which I won't read the whole thing here, but Andres listens to every Jack episode um, from where he lives in Hungary. And I just want to say thank you for your amazing note. Congratulations on your improving health and keep up the good fight, Andres. Stay strong. 100%. Right. Yeah. So, okay, now moving on to the question. There's a real global feel to this week's listener's question because now we have Michael and Michael starts – with holiday greetings from an American listener living in Milan, Italy. Hmm. I have a question about the timing of sentencing. In short, how much time typically elapses in a criminal trial between when a jury reaches a guilty verdict and when the sentencing occurs? If the jury in the Chutkin case were to return a guilty verdict at the end of April, for example, when would the sentencing likely happen? Before the Republican convention or at least before election day, grazie. Keep up the good work. <laughs> the the lawyer uh, answer is it depends, right? <laughs> yes, thank you. With that, I will <laughs> sign out. I've I've done my work here. Yes, it depends, and unfortunately, in this uh, for this question, it depends on like a lot of different things that are almost different in every single case. So the first thing that you look to see what's happening is whether or not the defendant was in jail or out of jail before trial, like pending trial. In this case, of course, um, uh, how it will apply to the former president, he is, of course, not held uh, in custody pre-trial. So defendants who are not held in custody, technically, as soon as they're convicted, they can be sentenced and put in jail. But typically, even, an, even a non-custodial defendant who gets convicted – uh, there's first, they have to conduct a pretrial report, which is done by the probation office as part of the federal courts. Uh, every, um, every district has one. And that pre preparation of that report, and it includes a lot of information that's relevant to sentencing, both mitigating and, um, uh, you know, um, exacerbating evidence, things that, that uh, speak to not guilt, but the defendants and now convicts uh, circumstances, right? So that's like when with the, for example, the Oath Keepers, when they, the DOJ uh, entered their um, 
sentencing recommendations. They had like a enhancement for domestic terrorism. Right. That kind of stuff. Uh, or is yeah. this more? Or it could be even more mundane stuff. Like, the, and okay, this is different because it's the Trump case and everyone in the world knows about it. But in the average federal criminal case, the judge doesn't really know anything about the defendant. This is the opportunity for the defendant to learn, hey, this person is married or single. They have no kids or five kids. They have held down a job or they haven't. Uh, also prior convictions Do they have, you know, uh, a rap sheet as long as your arm, or is this the first time they've ever been convicted of anything? And if they have right, prior or- convictions, were they for violent offenses? All these things have an impact on the actual computation of the sentence, the information. And the money stuff, right? That's right. All the money stuff has to do with like what, you know, their, what, uh, their conditions for bond and restitution, yeah. all kinds of things like that. So the so way if you had to pay a $250 million disgorgement fine, yes, that would come up then. Sure. So the way the judge finds out officially all that information is from the pre-sentence report. That can take a while to put together. Once the judge has that, there's also some, uh, you know, the sentence can essentially take, sentencing can take place any time after that. Um, some defendants will move to delay sentencing for one reason or another. If the defendant is appealing the conviction, sometimes, and all depending on the defendant, what you've been convicted for, and what your record looks like, and whether or not it's a violent offense, all that stuff, um, the judge might leave you out during the pendency of that appeal. Steve Bannon, perfect example. He's still out, I think, right? I don't think he's... Yep. He's been. Uh, I think he's going to be tried in New York before he's <laughs> put in jail <laughs> for be tried for and sentenced in New York before he ever gets sentenced. Some uh, defendants who cooperate with the federal government and then plead guilty, their sentencing is typically delayed until their cooperation is concluded. And some of those guys, like in organized crime cases, that can go on for years and years before they're ever sentenced. So there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, Matt that Gates's can delay buddy it. was put off for like two and a half years or something like that. Yeah, Greenberg. Joel Greenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he got sentenced for, you know, no joke. It wasn't like some simple financial fraud. He was- 11 years, yeah. Looking at serious time. So there's a lot that can affect it. I don't think anyone's going to rush to get this one done. I think it's unrealistic to expect, even if the DC case goes before the trial, concludes before the trial, and if Trump is convicted, I think it's unlikely he'll be sentenced before the election. I think so too. Uh, uh, And that is, I think, probably going to be another source of a lot of people being very angry at the pace of investigations. Probably. Um, The goal here, um, I believe, uh, uh, for Jack Smith, is to have the case tried before the election. And, And whether it ends in an acquittal or a conviction... That's, I believe, the goal. Yeah. Uh, to do to do that, uh, I don't. I honestly don't think he's taking the election into consideration. I think he's he's operating off of the idea that the public deserves a speedy trial and that the trial has been set for very good reasons in March. And I believe that that is why he's arguing that this needs to be expedited. Yeah. The immunity appeals have to be expedited. Uh, I know a lot of people on TV were like, well, he wa- he didn't say what he wants to say, which is that this needs to happen before the election. And I don't think he wants to say that. Uh, he's been very clear, as has the judge in this case, from the very beginning, that this guy's job, the election, politics play no role 
in this. What plays a role is the rule of law. And the rule of law is the Speedy Trial Act, which gives pub, you know, the public uh, deference to a, a speedy trial and that justice delayed is justice denied. I think that it's all based on that. I don't think he wants to say that he wants this done before the election. That's just a little bit of a side thing that that I've been thinking about because I, I, I take a little bit of, I guess, umbrage with people who think that Jack Smith really wants to get this done before the election and that's what he's operating. Uh, that's the timetable he's operating under. I don't think it is. I think he's operating under the timetable of the law. Yeah, I think he's probably making a really uh, considered effort to avoid tying the pursuit of this prosecution to the political process. I think that's important for appearance reasons, to maintain the legitimacy of the prosecutorial effort, which has been under attack by Trump and his supporters for a long time. I do, though, kind of think that in his position that the public deserves a speedy trial, which they do on pure constitutional grounds, there is an echo of they deserve to know the outcome of this prosecution before they make their decisions about yes. you know whether, who's going to represent them or who who they're going to vote for. Whether that outcome is an acquittal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's as important for the public to know that he's not been convicted as it is he has been convicted it is a it's a it's a salient relevant fact that every voter should be able to consider in whichever way they choose to consider it and but so so kind of maintaining the importance of that but also trying to keep the prosecution out of the political process that's a tough balance i think he's done it pretty well so far yeah, I think so too. And I do agree with that. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not on his mind at all. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that he believes that the public deserves either a conviction or acquittal so that they can make their choice. They can yeah. have an, a more informed choice. But yeah, to imagine that Donald Trump will be in prison before the election, I think no. is uh, not going to happen. No. I do think he will be sentenced to jail. Uh, at some point, I do think that um, I, because of the repeated calls of no one's above the law and we're mm -hmm. not treating him any special, any different or any special, more special than anybody else, any other criminal defendant. But the the sentencing process is long. It yeah. takes a long time. I, I've I've had a lot of folks say, gosh, why is it? Why is it six months from now? That's BS. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's there's a it's lot of long. stuff that has to be done. Yeah, a lot of due process for the defendant. You got to mm -hmm. find out how much money they make. You got to find out what their priors are. You got to put together a sentencing memo. You got to look up on the thing and, and right. they get to brief. It's long they and get complicated in the yeah. easiest case. This is not yeah. an easy case. There's all kinds of factors. Like if you're going to sentence him to to um, incarceration, where do you do that? How can you do that safely for a former president? What so. In any in any case, we could we could do another whole show on this, but <laughs> I think it's a while off. So, uh, Michael and all your friends uh, in Milan should just kind of buckle in. We got a long way to go. Absolutely, and a big thanks to Judge J. Michael Ludig Huge for joining thanks. us today. I feel so much smarter. I learned just so for much. having listened to him. It's great. So awesome 100%. that he's on. Yes, excellent, guys. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will be back in your ears in the new year next Sunday. Everybody have a safe and happy new year, and we really appreciate you listening to us for this past year. Uh, it's been uh, super educational for me, and of course, uh, you know, um, just 
thank you so much, Andy, for co-hosting uh, this show with me. I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to to say that. And thank you to all of listeners, too. Well, thank you, AG. And I thank you on behalf of myself and all the listeners for all the work that you do in putting this show and all, all the MSW shows together. You do an amazing job. And I have become smarter as a result of my conversations with you. So it's been a great year. And um, big up to the audience, our listeners. Have a great and safe new year. And uh, we will be back with you next week. I'm Andy McCabe. And I'm Allison Gill. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.